0: Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us.
1: So just want to say welcome as many of you were, were part of the group throughout the winter um, you have probably heard our little spiel before but for those of you that are new uh, so this is our Wednesday night networking this is like a one time thing this summer we will be continuing it on come November we're going to be going back to every week again um, but we miss you all and we thought that it'd be a great way to kind of connect in the middle of summer and, and see how everybody's is doing um, as always grow in is sponsoring this as is greener pastures ranching and I work for grow and I work for greener pastures ranching some of the time <laughs> um, so Yeah, with that being said, I guess I'll let Steve take it over. Um, The one thing with Gateway Research Organization, for any of you that don't know, is we have a YouTube channel. And on that YouTube channel, there's constantly new videos coming out. Um, I'm currently working on one that Steve is speaking in about uh, Kernza and perennial like perennial wheat and, and what that's all about and how it's looking at the grow trials this year and then we I have another one coming out on grass-fed beef and grass-fed meat in general and the nutritional differences between that and conventionally raised and that's with um Dr. Richard Bazinet from the University of Toronto as well as, well as Kelvin Ressler who is um he runs Top Grass Cattle Company out of Drumheller area and so he he markets into the grocery stores, grass fed beef. So really interesting to hear them talk. That's going to be a longer one. That's when the coffee shop talks, but yeah, lots of videos on there. So I will put in the the chat, the link to our YouTube channel. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should do so. Okay, Steve, it's your turn. That's my commercial. (laughs)
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you. So yeah, Amber is going to be putting stuff in the chat. And she's probably got lots of links she can throw in there. I'll throw in some as well. But uh, yeah, welcome to uh, Wednesday Night Networking. I know it's only one, one night uh, this summer, but everybody's usually too busy in the summer, but we thought we'd throw one in here. Um, for a lot of people, I know it's been a tough summer. Right, there's been a lot of droughts and there's a lot of, you know, price of hay's gone through the roof. Uh, if you're in an area that's uh, doing better, right on, um, I'm glad for you. But there's a lot of areas that are in, a, in a, um, pretty tough shape. Um, we actually just drove down south. Uh, I was lucky enough to uh, Drive through Alberta, Saskatchewan, Montana, and North Dakota. So I didn't see a whole bunch, but I saw those four. And yeah, just about the whole way, it was dry, very dry. One little part of North Dakota looked okay. The rest of it was pretty dry. So um, I know there's a lot of hay leaving Alberta right now going south. So the price of hay is skyrocketing. Um, So yeah, I went down to uh, Monoken Farms, actually. I'm wearing their t-shirt, if anybody can see it. Little, little push for them. Um, they had me down there, did a pasture rock. There was like over 200 people at the pasture rock. It was a fantastic turnout. I really enjoyed being there. They had lots of polycultures. Um, uh, they had some animals on there grazing. They had a little flirt, some sheep and some cows out there grazing some of these polycultures. So I was very impressed. If anybody's curious, go look up Minocan Farms. I'll try and put something in the in the chat here too but yeah it was a, a a great little tour they had on there so so yeah the topic of tonight um my special guest tonight is actually amber kenyon uh she's so special because she's my wife and uh we just had our anniversary and my anniversary present to her completely failed so now i have to make her my special guest yeah, so I got to make up that anniversary. We were, I was going to take her dancing and we went to go dancing and the lounge or bar that we went, went wanted to go country dancing in was closed on a Monday night. So we, we were, were actually
1: uh, in Olds for any of you guys down south. We were in Olds. There was um, Egg Smart was happening and Steve had an RDR meeting. <laughs> so it was a work trip. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so in, instead of our date night and going dancing, she got to hang out with the uh, ADM of uh, Agriculture. What's that uh, Assistant Deputy Minister? So uh, but maybe that's a, a perk for her. I don't know. Tonight's topic, because we've all had this, you know, well, a lot of people had a tough summer. Um, what went wrong? A lot of seminars and conferences we go to, we always hear what went Right. Right. What was, what, this is the the perfect thing. We see the perfect pictures. We, you know, this crop worked great and we get these great results and that's what everybody shows, but that's not reality, right? There's lots of times when things go wrong. I just like to, like I, I do that on my Facebook uh, page all the time you know sometimes things go wrong and not everything works perfectly at greener pastures all the time so i wanted to have a night where we just talk about stuff that didn't work out and how did you solve that or maybe somebody else has an idea i've I've said for years that uh in in the livestock industry there's 487 things that con- can go wrong and uh every year two of them go wrong but it's a different two so, right, you're you're always trying to find, you know, a solution for that other thing that went wrong this year that, well, last year you solved it, but now it's a completely new thing that went wrong. So, I just wanted to open that door. I mean, mental health to me is an important part of agriculture. Um, and if anybody is in that position right now, uh, you know, there's places to reach out for help. I've been there many times, so I, I don't want to uh, belabor that. but. There, there's lots of of issues that go wrong. Everybody has things that go wrong, and don't think that you're all alone. There's people out there to help. So, I'm going to throw a couple articles in the in the chat here later that that might help if you're in that position. But let's get into this and and talk about what went wrong this summer, and maybe we can get some solutions and and you know help each other. Don't be shy if you want to post something in the chat. Um, Amber's going to take start taking questions in the chat. The way this works is just networking. Um, we'll take them in order. Okay, so just to Crack this thing open. Um, as an example, like this is, a, it was a little confusing when I threw out the ad. People were like, what went wrong? Why don't we, why aren't we talking about what went right? So I don't think they quite understood it. So, as an example, what went wrong at Greener Pastures this year? Um, biggest thing for me, the drought caused water issues, right? We had grass all summer. I mean, we've, we've, uh, you know, we, did, we don't have as much as we normally do, but really for me, water issues and solar systems. Oh, that was my nemesis this year. The reason why is because the dugouts are that much lower. So your solar system has to pump, you know, an extra two or three or four feet higher. And it just can't handle it. And I actually have bigger herds this year. Normally on some of my bigger cells, I have two herds. So I'll, have, I'll try and split them evenly. Well, on both my cells this year, I got a big herd and a little herd. So that big herd, oh my gosh, I'm having so much trouble with my solar systems, right? It just can't keep up. Too many cows pumping too high, and and then the smoke comes in to help that out. So my lesson learned, um, I'm upgrading water systems like crazy the last couple of years, and I need to upgrade away from the solar system. So don't be offended, all you solar guys out there. I'm just – that was my takeaway this year. My solar systems are not keeping up to my herd. If anybody has any issue, you know, any comments or anything on that or anything else, that's just an example of, you know, what went wrong this year at Greener Pastures. So, um, And
1: normally Amber. we have problems with our solar systems come fall. Um, so we we expect that. The days are a little bit shorter and then we expect to have the problems. But, yeah, it's been different having it throughout the summer.
0: Yeah, all summer long. <laughs> Usually I add solar panels come, you know, end of August, but yeah, it's right in, in June, we were having troubles with solar systems. So,
1: so Steve, what would be, I'm going, yeah, actually Larry just asked the same question I was just going to ask you. So what do you think that the solution going to be for next year going forward?
0: Oh, big time, uh, buy more storage tanks, right? Basically all summer long, we've had a solar system running, but we carry around an emergency generator with a sump pump right so when you show up at at uh, 11 o'clock in the morning or at noon you fire up the generator put a little bit of gas in it and supplement the solar system right so you pump it and and fill the troughs up or fill it up usually i've got the trough set right now uh, to overflow back into the dugout so then you could overflow it just you know put in three or four hours worth of fuel in the generator and let it you know help that solar system to catch up um, just because it's working so hard. So, uh, I mean, I could buy more panels and more batteries, and but that generator and and sump pump is the most reliable system. Well, almost the most reliable system I have. My gravity flow is the best, but you don't always get to use gravity flow everywhere. So,
1: so Craig's asking, was it pump size, Steve, or was it the collection array?
0: The lift. It's, it's by far the lift. Like last year it worked perfectly fine all summer long and then this year because the dugout is three feet lower right now it's got a pump instead of pumping 10 feet now it's pumping 13 feet that just takes more power and the battery storage just doesn't have enough and then when the smoke rolls in we just don't get the sun so we're not charging batteries so between the the extra lift and the the smoke uh, yeah solar systems just are not working
1: and kelvin would like to know what are the other options so you talked oh. to about gravity flow and stuff. Maybe go over that a little
0: bit. Yeah, all sorts of options. Uh, my, if I can do gravity flow, that's great, but you have to have it set up right so you can siphon out of a, a water body down a hill to a trough and then it'll just keep siphoning. And even some of those are getting iffy this year because my dugouts are getting so low, so they're not siphoning. I had one siphon that stopped running because... I, I didn't have enough height anymore, um, so I had to pump it. There was still water in the dugout, but where the trough was sitting, we were lower than where the trough was, so the siphon stopped. Most reliable for me, by far, is a you know a gas-powered pump or a generator with a sump pump, pumping to a big tank, right? Hopefully, at least a three-day supply. That then gravity flows to a trough, right? Because those are the ones that you know went on that hot day when it was plus 37. I didn't have to go check it. I knew it was working. I filled it yesterday. It's got a 3-day supply. I know it's working. Whereas the solar power, pa- you know, the solar systems, it's like, oh, it's 37 degrees. They're they're really going to be drinking, they're really going to be pushing that system. Uh, I better go down and, you know, drive down and check that. So there's another trip. So that big storage tank is is definitely the way to go.
1: As long as you have a good float system,
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you gotta make because
1: those fail too sometimes. Uh, Larry asked if we ran out of water or just lower water levels.
0: There's a couple dugouts that are almost empty, and because I'm pumping out of them, I can go down to you know three inches of depth, (laughs) and I've been there. Yes, this summer we we got to one dugout that was almost completely empty. If I was letting them walk into that dugout to drink uh it would have been done a month earlier because they would have punched it out so much so
1: and craig asked do you have a magic formula for sizing a reserve
0: magic three days that's my magic
1: how do you know how big to make it
0: yeah how big is your herd what they drink 10 to 15 gallons a day plus or minus depending if it's hot or cold
1: Okay, and Brian, was there that much smoke that would affect grass quality or the energy in it?
0: Not as bad this year as, as three years ago. Three years ago, it actually, the month of August, all the grass shut down. The smoke was so bad three years ago. So this year, I was hoping we weren't getting to that. We had some, slow, you know, it slowed it down a little bit, but but not, not entirely.
2: Can I intercept? Yes. Sure. Hey, why are you looking at tanks? At my 500 acres, I had two dugouts on the two high spots, you know, on each end of my property. And there I would have for a whole week. So while they were grazing that quarter section, I pumped it up to there. And then it ran by gravity to all the traps going back the same pipe. It took me and Paul figured out I could run up one way and come back the same pipe.
0: <laughs> that is true, Ula. I should have mentioned that I do have a couple of turkeys' nests. That's what we call them in Australia. The turkeys mount on the top of a hill, build their little nest. So somehow this got was an Australian term. So you would uh, what I've done in the past, Ula, is when you dig a dugout, there's a big pile of clay beside the dugout. If you hollow out the top of the pile of clay, then you've got a storage body. However, in that case, you have to kind of line it with something. I use silage plastic because it's a a loose clay, so it'll leak out. So you have to line it. Um, Then you can get a lot of storage, uh, relatively cheap. I would much, if I'm going to do it ever again in the future, it's going to be up on a hill on solid clay because the silage plastic doesn't last long enough. I'm continuing, you know, Every two to three years, I'm fighting. There's holes in the silage plastic. Now i got to reline it or refix it. Or So if I could pump up to a hill, dig a hole at the top of the hill, then I've got solid clay, you know, in my environment, at least. If you were in a sandy area, this might not work. But if you've got good clay base, then that that would hold water as well, you bet.
1: So the next one here, I'm actually going to take it first, Steve. Um, Brian English, we have had issues with solar batteries. I have taken back one and two month batteries to the store we bought them. And they said they haven't seen batteries with bad cells. Wonder if the smoke um, hampered the solar panels from charging properly. So we have a a pet peeve with batteries we've replaced our one so for any of you that don't know we have an off-grid shop and we lived in the off-grid shop for three years and we bought brand new batteries for it paid a fortune for them um had them properly connected and everything and we have yet to see the batteries work properly i think for any length of time um so I personally think that they just don't know how to make good batteries yet (laughs) would be my thoughts. Uh, I don't know what you'd say to that, Steve.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Um, We need a better battery. That's the problem. I mean, my solar systems for my fencers work great. Love them, right? You just put a little solar panel on them. They work all day long. A a small herd, right? We've got a herd, uh, 100, 100 bred heifers. Solar systems work great all year. They're doing fine. The dugout, you know, even though, even though the dugouts are lower, I could bring another panel. Like we probably got about a hundred, 125 watt panel on that system, right? It depends on the height you're pulling. I've got lots of solar panels around. I've, I've been buying solar panels for years. I've got, uh, nine 300 watt panels sitting in the shop that aren't even hooked up yet um i I got lots of solar panels but i'll bring in another solar panel and add to a system right that's my my plan in august Um, you you add a solar panel add another 50 watts another 80 watts um, just to kick systems up Um, but the battery storage is a problem right if you're ever gonna you know go into solar or do anything with solar over over plan on your battery storage Right. When we first planned our shop system, we wanted three days of autonomy. So basically that means three days with no sun and you should still be able to operate. Yeah. And we've never seen that. That's what we were supposed to have. And we've, you know, one day with, you know, cloud and storm and we're starting a generator and running it. So, um, yeah, batteries is the issue. Tesla needs to build us a cheaper, better battery.
3: Uh,
1: that's a good question though um, so next one is from kevin and anissa what type of pumps are you using
0: oh okay so this turned into a what water system we use instead of what we're, <laughs> that's okay i'm perfectly fine with that um what type of pump am i using of quite cheap a variety. Ones. <laughs> cheap ones and that could be the problem you get what you pay for. We bought a bunch of, you know, I I upgraded a bunch of systems or built a bunch of new systems this year. And I used the cheap uh, bilge pumps from Princess Auto. They were on sale. Normally, I think they're 60 or 70 bucks and they were on sale for like 30 bucks. So I bought like, what'd we buy? Five or six of them? Something like that. Anyway, I was trying to make it so I didn't have to move water systems. I wanted to set up, you know, leave them there. And then we didn't have to be moving systems all the time, trying to increase capital and reduce labor. But they have to work harder, and they don't last as long. So, if you buy the five hundred dollar solar, you know bilge pump, it's gonna last. I've got one that's I've had for probably fifteen plus years, right? Uh, the cheap ones I buy, they might last two years, and I gotta all of a sudden they're they're they wore out. So, you get what you pay for, basically, in the in the definitely in the twelve volt system. Yeah, those are 12-volt bilge pumps. Um, I'd actually like to, I think there's a, uh, you can order them online. I asked my wife to order them for me, but she didn't yet.
1: Because <laughs> I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: She's much uh, better at uh, uh, ordering things online than I am. I'm not very good online. But uh, I think there's a company called Seaflow you can order them from, and they're a little higher quality pumps. pump. So. Uh, and when I went through their their website, or whatever, googled it anyway. Um, they looked like the solar pumps I bought years ago that have lasted 15 years. So um, I think that's the next ones that I'm going to buy.
1: Peter just added to that, that the sea flow pumps from China are fantastic. Good life, flow, drawn, pump, great. Shipping's expensive now, though. I will also warn anyone that is shipping anything out of China right now. It seems to take months and months and months to get to you. So just be prepared for that. If you're going to order anything online, um, especially coming out of Asia, you expect to wait for it. Don't don't think it's going to come in a couple of days. Larry asks if we've had any cows out this year
0: any cows out this year um, I think we've had three so three out of 1400 isn't bad my uh, grazing manager this year uh, he's he's got a uh, I don't think he's on here yet tonight I haven't seen him have you <laughs> I can talk about him um, we have a uh, perimeter breach bonus one of the one of the bonuses that we pay here at greener pastures um, you get uh, five hundred dollars a month bonus perimeter breach if you don't have any And every time there's a perimeter breach, you lose 250 bucks out of your bonus. So it encourages them to make sure the fences are really good. Um, And I think he's had three all summer so far. So he's lost a little bit. But every so every time you, you can have two perimeter breaches a month. And after that, you give up and let them all out, I guess. So (laughs) maybe I got to rethink that.
1: Um, Dustin says, pink eye in cattle has been a big problem in our area in conjunction with the amount of flies this year has made the infection spread easily. From a regenerative point of view, what's the best way to control or manage it?
0: Ah, pink eye. I'm I'm glad that one came up. I'd love to hear what other people have to say on that as well. Um, We have had years where we've had bad pink eye and then years where we haven't. This year, we haven't. Fly control, uh, I mean, I've talked about this before. If you look behind me, that's my number one fly control behind me, is building riparian areas, building ecosystems that encourage predators. And the dragonfly is one of my favorite predators. We have a really good video, don't we, Amber? Of Because uh, I called you out to that, that day when there was hundreds of uh, dragonflies flying in that one area. It's so nice to see the dragonflies out there because they're very agile. They're great flyers and they're very good predators. They pick out mosquitoes and flies and all sorts of things. So to me, it's a predator. Uh, Spiders, dragonflies, bats, uh, cowbirds, wasps. They're really great, aren't they, Amber?
3: Fantastic.
0: (laughs) Amber got attacked here, swarmed by a... Uh, a whole bunch of wasps not too long ago she came home with eight eight wasp stings and and yeah we had to nurse her back to health for quite a while so
1: they do eat flies though <laughs> so there's that
0: there is something. Um, the thing. other so- thing
1: that we've done is thrown out sulfur blocks with the cattle because that's supposed to help with fly control tansy apparently is supposed to help too So let's all grow
0: some tansy. Yeah, the odor on, if the cattle get to walk through tansy, it's a a parasite, you know, kind of like an insecticide. So I don't know if that helps too much, but... I know our county hates tansy and they want you to pick it and burn it and get rid of it. And I actually don't mind it. Um, it has some other benefits. It's got a huge root system. It's going to hold snow and it's windbreak. Uh, I've seen a uh, bluebird's nest nestled in the base of it. A couple of uh, tansy plants n- uh, more than once. So what was our original question? Pink eye.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Pink eye. We've also used kelp um, in with the mineral. You want to speak to that, Steve?
0: Yeah, years ago, I oh Gerald Fry, I think we went to uh, his school, and uh, basically his pink eye remedy was to when you get a pink eye breakout, you take away the salt and mineral completely, and replace it with kelp meal. Now kelp meal is a seaweed, basically out of the uh, out of the ocean, and it's very high in minerals and and vitamins and nutrients, right? Basically, so. I took that as a cure, right? You get pink eye, you can cure it by putting kelp meal out. Okay. Well, what if I want the prevention? So I don't know if this is correct or not, but I went uh, years ago. I went to my feed company and said, "Okay, I want kelp meal added to my mineral," and thought, "Well, if I put you know two bags in every ton of mineral, then maybe I can prevent pink eye instead of just curing it." So I don't know if it ever, ever worked. I did it for quite a few years. Uh, in the last few years basically i don't know some years i don't have pink eye problems so if i get a pink eye breakout now i'll buy a couple of bags of kelp meal and i'll mix it in with some mineral usually my pink eye breakouts are in herds that they only want salt okay so they're not getting any minerals so even if i've got a customer who only wants salt i'll usually there's a secret okay i'll usually feed the mineral at my own cost in the spring right? Put some salt, but make sure they get some mineral might. If there's a pink eye breakout, then I phone them up and say, we should add some kelp meal. We should get this under control. Um, But just to save my own labor, I usually throw some mineral out there just to give them a little bit of a kickstart. And it seems like the herds that uh, end up getting a lot of pink eye are the ones that didn't have mineral to begin with. So.
1: Okay. So just a little thing here. We're out of practice. Everyone's supposed to turn on their mics and ask their questions. So (laughs) apparently it's been too long. Um, I'm going to, from here on out, if you put your question (laughs) into the chat, I will ask you to turn on your mic. And if you don't want to, I can read it out as well. Um, But that makes it a lot more engaging. I'm thinking this is kind of boring, just me and Steve talking the whole time.
0: (laughs) And I'm getting tired of talking, yeah. So who had Um, the pink eye question? Let's let them answer.
1: Brian English. You want to speak to that, Brian?
0: No,
4: I I didn't have the pink eye question, but I did respond to it. It's been one of our worst years for pink eye and just in one herd. Uh, We've got three herds. So yeah, we're, uh, the cattle are almost afraid of seeing me walk in there because they know I have a stock doctor in my hand. And I've been, uh, we had one calf that was completely blind and didn't make the, the trip with the rest of the cattle over the highway and we found them the next day with thank goodness the neighbors noticed them there i'm not a cowboy so uh, my roping skills are pretty bad thank god no one was on the highway when they saw that <laughs> but uh, our <laughs> local vet says that uh pink eye has been foot rot and um they're running low on antibiotics ouch oh
1: yeah you're right it was dustin helms that asked the original question so dustin if you have anything to say i see that you have another one up brian but you can ask that after
0: we also have one in the corrals that uh, can hardly see but it was like that when it showed up at our place it it, but we kind of ended it now my question brian what's the difference between the three hertz would it be a mineral issue before they were at your place
4: they get the same minerals. Um I don't know. I really don't know. Um these guys are now on polycrops. That was a disaster this year. We have Canada flea bane, we've had dandelions, we've had um narrow leaf hawksbeard take a lot of our yield away, our our polycrops. After six years of this, I don't think I'll be doing polycrops again. But I mean, we just up until Monday, we've only had four and a half inches of rain. So it, when we put our corn in on May 9th and tenth, we had great growing conditions, and it got cold. The corn didn't come out for fourteen days, and then we couldn't spray until four leaf, and dandelions took over. We sprayed when it was thirty-one degrees Celsius, and we killed twenty-five acres of corn. So, it, and we've never had to do that on our farm. So, sorry, I missed some of that you were breaking.
3: Yeah, up, you're cutting
4: it uh, out. We're not as bad as the interlake in Manitoba. They. I was just going to say the uh, Interlake has got it worse in Manitoba and um, they've got really bad conditions there.
0: Yeah, it's pretty tough all over.
1: So Dustin was the one who actually asked the original question. Uh, Dustin, do you want to speak to that at all?
5: I think you guys answered most of it. I think part of my comment on the regenerative aspect of it is we treated it with antibiotics, of course, but... (laughs) The flies being as bad as they are, it spread to probably 60 to 70% of the herd. And so while we normally don't use any other chemicals or insecticides, we ended up getting some, uh, I forget the name of it, but like an IvoMech, but uh, Cycline, I think it's called. And we use that as a poron to control the flies, which has helped a lot. Uh, And I know the impacts that has going down the chain with the insects that are beneficial. So looking more for ways around avoiding having to use that because you know I'm trying to st- stick with that regenerative ag aspect
0: yeah um it, it's a long-term plan right it's if you have to deal with something short-term i 100 uh, percent understand that i'm not gonna you know hold that against you by any means but how can you plan now for the next time you're going to get a pink eye breakout can you you know help protect a riparian area uh back back some water up so you have a riparian area in that area uh, i i don't know your situation but to me it's the predators right cowbirds dragonflies uh bats right put up some bat houses um something to be able to help manage that uh, naturally
1: encourage some black or some bald faced wasps in your fields
0: (laughs) just actually just ask amber to go stand in your field and they will show up there
1: (laughs) that's fun um next up is karen
3: oh you're funny amber (laughs) you put on the put that what, what do you they're not the paper paper things but just somehow encourage them to come us.
1: yeah we'll, we'll like bring meat and sugar water and just plant it in the middle of a field right and then you'll have all the
3: wasps there but it's yeah. a great idea <laughs> and you'd have more than just the the black the black ones you'd have the yellow jackets and you know all these other ones and then you would <laughs> be able to the field again <laughs> anyway i would, my question was just wondering how is the polyculture crop doing,
0: Steve? Polyculture crop. Uh, so we seeded some grain land down. Um, we took over uh, just over 100 acres of grain land this year. So we seeded it down to a uh, cover crop, polyculture, whatever it is, uh, whatever you want to call it. And we had almost no rain on it. So the one of the fields, there's two, two parts to it. One of the fields had some winter wheat seeded last year and then a cover crop this spring. Uh, interseeded into it and the other one just had the cover crop interseeded uh, this this spring first one the wheat came up well the cover crops not so well because the wheat outcompeted it so we basically grow uh grazed uh, winter wheat and then the other one we just basically got a bunch of weeds up and there was a few turnips and a few you know lots of volunteer canola came up just because we didn't have the moisture, right? So you tell me the year that it's going to rain perfect, and I'll tell you the year that this is going to work good. Um, and now we've got a little bit of rain. We had a couple inches in end of July, and we've had a few sprinkles since. It's starting to look better. Um, some of the we've got some an, another generation germinating, which is good. Even in the cedros, you can see where the the disc drill drove down. So they're coming up in the stuff we already grazed now we're getting a flush of i hope what i think is the perennials right lots of grasses are coming up now and we've um uh in the one field i saw what i think is going to be the japanese millet coming up so it's a lot broader Mm -hmm. broader leaf so you know if we you know please keep giving me the rain and this might kick into gear and we'll get a great grazing in september and october but uh, yeah so far without the moisture the cover crop is you know not even close to what it was uh, 2 years ago when we did it so
3: because well, a lot of the i think is it a lot of the species that are used in there are pretty water hungry like they're not not exactly Drought-tolerant type species, more kind of the temperate, and need more water than kind of like alfalfa. Alfalfa is kind of that water-hungry one. If it's not putting a tap root way, way down twenty feet down the soil.
0: Yeah, clovers died out this year, right? Clovers don't do well in a drought. Alfalfa, if it's established, can do well in a drought, but not that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that did really well in the winter wheat, uh, which is drought-tolerant, is the facelia. And uh, yeah. I love facelia because it's also very. Uh, Mycorrhizal, right? It'll kick the micro mycorrhizal fungi into gear. So uh, I was very happy to see it at least survive in there and get things maybe it'll kickstart things for next year. So
3: and it's like crack cocaine for bees.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was a lot of bees and wasps. Yeah, there was probably wasps.
3: Anyway, that, that's all my question. I gotta get my eggs, so thanks. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, and the facility is almost as pretty as my wife, too. So
1: you're just sucking up because we didn't get to go dancing. (laughs) So next up is Brian English. You want to read your question out, Brian?
4: What was my question?
1: It was about winter feed.
4: Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I can I can do that one. Um, Yeah, that's that's our next big issue is. Every province is short of feed, so uh, we're trying to find alternate feeding uh, opportunities, and we're finding that prices are going up every week. I think that is going to be Western Canada and the Northern States' issues, because we can't even bring it in North Dakota, South Dakota. They're, they're in the same boat. So I think we are so- all got an issue there
0: we're going to have a lot of trouble this year with feed. I was asked if, uh, uh, about a month ago is, you know, how stressed am I about this, this uh, the drought this season? And my, my first response was, well, not near as stressed as, as if I would be, if I had to buy hay to feed these animals, right? Cause I'm a custom guy, I don't own them. So I just send them home when I'm done, but everybody who's got to buy feed. Oh my goodness. Uh, one of the biggest issues right now is the U.S. A lot of the U S south of the office, anybody from down there, if I'm wrong on this, please correct me. But they already had some drought subsidy payouts. So they already have some money to buy feed. So what I heard was southern Alberta, southern Saskatchewan, the feed is heading south across the border. It's going like crazy. There was buyers coming up from the states buying everything they could find, and it was heading south. So uh, we haven't really had our help or anything from the government yet. I think we just had some announcements here in the last week, Um, but it it might be too late because all the feed's going to be gone, right? The feed's all heading south. So anybody have any comments on that? I'd I'd love to hear it. Agri-recovery has been announced.
4: So I think the price of feed is all going to go up now um, because people know that we're going to get a, you
0: know, we're going to get a bit of a subsidy. Um, is is there any left to buy though? Like, unless the grain farmers start putting up green feed, which honestly, by the looks out there, everything's matured too far anyway. It's it's not going to be good quality green feed. Yeah, the green feed's over here.
1: Um, next up, we have Scott Gillespie. I hope I said your name yeah. right.
6: Yeah, actually, you did. Yep, oh, good. good. <laughs> um, so mine uh, mine
3: relates a little bit back to what you were talking about. I think it was the dragonfly. Um, and you're talking about the pink eye. So I was kind of curious if you knew how far you thought they fly or how far a control you might get. So like say, like with a riparian area, if you had one among a quarter, do you think they would fly far enough to give enough control, or do you think you need more? or yes, just kind of yeah, general comments.
0: my my gut feeling would be one riparian area on a quarter would be adequate. okay. Yeah, because they, um, I've I've been, you know, probably a half a mile away from a riparian area, and you know, trying to count the dragonflies in the sky that I can't count, right? Okay. So then they're not close to riparian area. So yes, I think one per quarter would be adequate. Okay.
1: Hey, i have so i'm putting jay on the spot if he's paying attention right now um because i saw did, his post i know so i'm gonna get him to talk a little bit about what the so jay works for gateway research organization with me he's our soil conservation analyst i think i got that title right um and he is brilliant when it comes to bugs and and stuff he also used to work for Bar- barhead county so he He has a good idea of what the county regulations and stuff are. So
0: Jay... So he's gonna get me in trouble for having tansy on my land. I know what he's right. gonna say.
7: <laughs> well, it, it, just in in very brief defense of uh, of the regulations that do call tansy a noxious weed. Back in that terrible year that we some of us still remember of 2002, when uh, there wasn't anything to be had as far as grazing or feed goes until late in the season, we did have cows slip there. Their calves when they were grazing on tansy, so there there is some background as to why tansy is is on the noxious weed list for, for um, Alberta. Um, but all that being said, it's just noxious. It's not prohibited, so we don't absolutely have to have it uh, eliminated from a field. It does need to be controlled as the provincial regulations. So so that's where where that's coming from um things that uh, went wrong uh, for us, one of the, the things that I was very hopeful and was looking pretty good in the in the summer is some of our polycultures. Um, we did throw a, a wide variety of things in some of our uh, plots. One of them was uh, quinoa, and oh my goodness, quinoa did not do good this year in in polyculture um, or even on its own. so, um, that was uh, something that we're hopefully going to try again. It could be a combination of not only the, uh, the crop, but also the land that it was on because the, the canola uh, sucked mightily on that uh, section as well. Um, but uh, we're going to keep trying. Hopefully, we'll be able to at least get another year out of uh, some of our uh, uh, intercropping trials, and uh, that's one thing that we're, we're going to hope to redo in a different site and in, in other uh, conditions, hopefully. And uh, we'll see if we uh, can get a, a very diverse uh, intercropping polyculture type uh, field going in future.
0: Awesome, thanks, Jay. So I have one question for you, Jay. Of all your trials, of all the the grow trials, which ones did the best in the drought?
1: This is so a setup question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I
7: want to hear the know. answer. <laughs> which ones did the best? um we've got some awesome looking winter cereals um right now we're starting to harvest uh amber i'm not sure if, if you uh, noticed but uh in my feeble way of trying to deal with twitter we did put up the uh the very first plot that we harvested with our brand new plot combine um <laughs> (laughs) It uh, the the winter cereals are are looking uh, amazing this year Um, and uh, the perennial cereals uh, are probably the tallest of any crop that we've got. So excited about those. Hopefully we'll be able to get uh, the uh, the kernza, the winter or the perennial uh, wheat uh, to mature. It's still looking a little bit green and the seeds are still pretty soft, but fingers crossed that we'll get a good crop off of that. Perennial rye is 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 kicking it out of the park. It looks really good.
1: I was working all day on a video on Kernza. Um, so it's almost ready to go with, with what it's looking like right now. So you guys will be able to see it on our YouTube channel.
0: Yeah, so just a little bit of background on that. I set Jay up on that one. I knew he'd answer the right question, though. Uh, the winter, the, the Ace One uh, perennial rye and the Kernza perennial wheat are just looking fantastic this year, right? The barley field around is about a foot and a half tall and the kernza and the the ace one is you know four to five feet tall right it just gets that extra bit of moisture in the spring to get a, the kick start and uh it, it's just doing amazing in the drought so i'm very impressed with those and i'm looking forward to seeing some results i'd love to i can't wait for you guys to get out there and harvest that kernza i want to see what uh what happens with that so thanks jay
3: so,
1: I normally wouldn't do this, but because I know both these people, Shorty wants to put Karen on the spot, Karen Linquist, to talk about some native grasses and how they're dealing with the low water scenario, and I, I think Karen's up to the challenge.
3: <laughs> Thanks. Uh, well, I. I I think the thing with with natives is that the natives are smarter than the than the tame tame. Let's, let's put it that way. Native grasses tend to be uh, shut down a little bit earlier. They tend to conserve their energy a bit more than the, uh, than, the than the tame tame grasses. They tend to. Um, typically with the native grasses they're they're a lot more adapted to the extremes in this in this country so like especially in this you know in this province in this area because they they're adapted to the extremes of taking advantage of a lot of lot of moisture and, and then and then knowing to shut down in the uh in the drier portions of the year like like when they're uh like when it's it's this time of year like it's it's a really really dry that they're no no water's coming it's it's so hot you know because when you get drought you just it's not just um it's not just the lack of moisture but it's also the heat so the heat kind of stresses stresses plants out a lot and and that kind of gets plants into a shutdown mode and they're wanting to put their seeds out early they wanted to get their offspring as off, off to the races as or as early as they can before it's before they basically die because all, all plants all their goal is to is to produce offspring so with with the natives they i see th- i see that they kind of just shut down but they also they're also pretty good in that how they the roots you know and the, the root of the matter is is that they they uh a lot of the native grasses that, that I, I know of, they tend to put down a whole lot of root down into the soil. And that's primarily because it's it's also, roots are primarily an energy source for those plants. So they can draw on that energy source when they need to, especially when it's a time when they get next next spring when it's perfect time for them to to start growing again they can draw on those reserves and and start start growing again so the other thing is that they yes they do also draw a little bit of moisture and and for minerals but they they have some pretty pretty deep root systems like um i know that for most species about 60 some 80 percent of the biomass is below ground and the rest is above ground. So you can imagine just you think above ground those native plants they look like they're short and stubby but look at the roots below ground that's pretty pretty amazing what they have down there. So that's the main thing with the uh with those with those native species now with especially with the native grasses. That's a fantastic answer, Karen. Thank you.
1: 30 questions or I think I covered most of it. I think that's good. Awesome. Thanks. Next up we have Berlin. I'm hoping I'm saying your name right.
6: Yeah. Uh, so I had actually asked a uh, asked Steve privately about this, about the toad flax because I get, I got some I'm a, some available some fescue or brome grass or something that has toad flax in it. And we don't have it on our property currently. And his words were, well, it's good carbon, you know, don't worry about it. And I'm kind of there myself as far as not worrying about whether the county likes it or not, you know, in this, but I, but as far as managing it, since we don't have it on our property yet, kind of hesitant because I'm like, okay, how do we, I'm still, we're just in the process of learning this stuff. So how do we manage? That's really what it is. How do we, how do we safely manage it so that we're comfortable with how it's going to turn out?
0: So I've already answered them. This was not on a private chat here. This was in an email earlier, just so. And uh, basically, I don't worry about any weeds coming in because I can outcompete any weeds with my polycultures and my grazing, right? So that's my quick answer to to Verlin. Uh, Anybody else had any issues with with that particular weed? Um, By all means, uh, add your comments in there for sure. But... uh, uh, yeah, it it doesn't matter what type of weed it is to me. It's a summer grazing management issue. It doesn't matter where it came from, if it came in with the bales, if it came in from the neighbor, if the oil field company drove through with their cat and left weeds on your land, I know my dad's a one of those grumpy old farmers that always complains about stuff like that. so i've I've heard that a hundred thousand times. It doesn't matter where the weeds came from. okay it it is it, it is a management issue. We need to suppress the weeds. Right, we've I've had fields with uh, sandless chamomile and all sorts of things that are there. If we manage it well, it it takes a few years. I mean, throw a couple of droughts in there, and it takes a few more years. But what we need to do is outcompete them. We need to give the the growing conditions so that the more desirable species will just outcompete the weeds. So that was I'm pretty sure that was my uh, my answer to you, Berlin. Before, so if anybody else has any comments about that particular one, that we're open for that.
2: Okay. When we took over that 120 acres we graze currently 20 years ago, <clears throat> it was a canola field, and they had dragged the toad flax roots all over. They just really, really grew well and by now it is almost competed out just like you say by good management but i just noticed here today that down where there is a very uh, they actually took some sand out down there it's wet sand so there the tote is doing well again this summer because they drought
0: and that's uh, 20 years later
2: 20 yeah
0: 20 years it, later the seeds very- are always there
2: well, it's it just a, the roots and the seeds,
0: yeah. Yeah, it, they'll come back if you change the conditions, if you have a drought. Actually, this year, um, in my environment, Canada thistle is having a heck of a time, right? We had two years of super wet where we had some big herds out there and at certain times of the year in certain places, they punched it out, they compacted the soil, they beat it up, right? I'll admit that, it, it happens. And then we have a year of dry after that where canada thistle root system you know has all the advantage yeah we got a lot of thistle this year am i worried about that no not at all right next year we'll have hopefully we'll have a decent year we'll come in the thistle comes in and heals the land the root system breaks down we bring up nutrients um we flatten it to the ground hopefully with some you know decent high stock density uh i'm not worried about it at all um so It's just a matter of of this year's different than last year. Last year's different than the year before. So uh, it's a part of the polyculture. I don't get stressed over it because everybody else does.
1: Next up, we have Kendall. Kendall, are you ready? Yeah. Perfect.
8: Yeah, so I was, you got started talking about cow Camel, and I have that too. I'm not too worried about it besides the county. My stress is water hemlock, Um, super poisonous. Most people don't know what it's about. Um, Last year, I lost about 2% of my calves to it. Little calves, they're curious, they go eat anything and everything. On a wet year, I think it's quite a bit worse because it's the very bottom of the plant that is super, super poisonous and so they pull the whole root up and eat the whole thing when you're when you're trying to non-selectively graze it's a plant that they don't really they don't really like it the taste of it but when you're doing some higher stock density or daily moves they just eat it because it's there can good grazing Um, get enough roots that it lowers the water table enough that it dies out because it likes growing in water yeah that's one of my deals or do i have to go pick it all by hand
0: yeah okay so water hemlock i've never had an issue with it i know i have it but i you know as far as i know i haven't had any animals die from it um I try. Now, it doesn't always happen. I have a lot of very large paddocks that I can't avoid all of the riparian area, right? The low spots, whatever. But in my, in my grazing rotation, I try and leave some of my riparian areas to a little later in my rotation. Um, and hopefully they're not as wet then. Um, on those wet years, you don't need your riparian areas, right? Like you don't have to graze them. Uh, on a wet year, I've got tons of grass everywhere else. I can skip a riparian area if I'm really worried about that. If especially if that's a history uh, in the wet area that uh, I'm I've got water hemlock and it's going to be a problem. Um, don't use it. Leave it. There's a riparian area management and and on on the dry year it comes back around. Then yeah, you can you go out there and uh, for me the riparian areas on the dry year uh, it extends my rest period for me. Right. It 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 allows me to. Give more rest to those other good paddocks. So, um, I haven't had an issue with it. I'm not saying it's not a concern, but riparian areas it, when they're wet, I try and stay out of them for all sorts of other reasons too. Right? I'm trying to protect, uh, you know, the 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 ecosystem for my my predators, my dragonflies, my spiders, my you know duck. Uh, nesting. Uh, we, I've put fences around a goose nest that I found once in a while, just to make sure she can get her babies uh, before we graze it. Uh, I don't know if I answered that very well, but I have not had the problem because of our our system is is intact. I think, um, but I don't force them to graze that intense as well. Um, I like to leave lots of residue. So if I'm forcing them to graze absolutely everything, and I understand, you know, calves are dumb. Um, Maybe that's part of uh, what Darwin's theory of evolution, but uh, y- you know you don't have those those genetics in your herd next year to do the same thing. So, if anybody yeah. else has a comment, by all means, give uh, give Kendall a, uh, a
7: private chat on that too. Thank you.
3: So, Jay,
1: are you ready to go there?
7: I don't know. Uh, well, I've seen it pretty widespread that uh, there's a thistle that looks like it's uh, on steroids, only it's really pale. Um, that's actually uh, something that's getting more and more common around uh, around central Alberta anyway, and that's a good thing because that is actually, uh, uh, oh boy, yeah, I should know the Latin name, Puccini, I'm not sure of the full name of it. Um, it is a, a, a condition that is impacting the thistle. And uh, it's just great to see. In fact, I just took a picture of it today, where the uh, the pale stuff is just growing and and uh, staying pale, whereas the uh, stuff that isn't impacted by this condition is flowering and spreading seeds all over the place. So the more of this pale colored thistle you see around in the ditches, and you can even pull pull plants out and drag them around to the other uh, non-affected patches. Uh, It's supposed to actually be reducing the uh, ability for the uh, thistle to grow and reproduce. So kind of, kind of cool, kind of good stuff to have uh, an eye on and and, uh, do have a a boo as you're driving around in the ditches and stuff. You can see a lot of this uh, almost uh, chlorotic kind of totally pale thistle uh, that's out and about these days. So kind of fun, kind of interesting.
1: You also made a comment about picking Western water hemlock. I think that might be a really important one just to kind of put out there because we were just talking about that.
7: Yeah, yeah. If if you are going to pick any western water hemlock or any of those plants that are are known to have some toxicity, uh, humans can be impacted as well. We had somebody who who thought he was a, a hero and and went and picked uh, western water hemlock in short sleeves and got all sweaty and stuff like that, and he had some permanent uh, blistering and bruising of his uh, arms as a result of him uh, grabbing the thistle and then some of the juices. Uh, impacting or touching his, his sweaty arm and and uh, turning into some pretty serious painful long-term uh, blistering and, and bruising that, that occurred so so please be careful if you're going to pick any of that any of the others as well and heaven forbid that we ever get uh, some of the more serious, uh, Ones around the western water hemlock and the like are natives. Uh, some of the invasive species, the introduced ones, can be really, really scary as well. So if you're going to pick any of those toxic ones and you're right, the, uh, the root, particularly the, the chambered root that it, the, cal- the calves seem to have some kind of affinity for, um, if there's any juices that come out of those roots, that can be quite harmful to, uh, to those of us who, uh, who ever try and pick it. So be careful.
0: Thanks, Jay. So, what you're saying is don't pick it in Speedos.
7: <laughs> That's how
1: Steve don't likes to pick it. singing metal.
7: Did um, I, I, you know there was there a story about, uh, about Speedos and, and weed pulling that I will not bring up here? <laughs> but, uh, that, hey, now I got a mental picture, Jay yeah no. picture. <laughs> <laughs> oh no 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 <laughs> uh, i will tell amber the story sometime it's it's kind of weird <laughs> okay okay i'm worried about that now too so thanks jake um Thank th- th- th-
0: you. i would expect uh, a picture of that thistle you took uh, on your grow twitter page so that people can go take a look at it
1: um so next up brian english are you ready to go
0: Yeah, I was just wondering how everyone
4: is uh, doing with grasshoppers. Some areas we've got really bad grasshoppers and I'm worried about next year because they're laying a lot of eggs. So
0: how is everyone else finding grasshopper populations? So any pest that arises, it's because the conditions are favoring them, right? Grasshoppers love a, a dry area that's their that's their heaven years ago actually back to 202 right when we had the severe drought uh, that was like when I was first starting bale grazing I think 2000 and, I did a little bit in 99 and, and 2000 and 2001 a little bit of bale grazing kind of my my primitive form of bale grazing back then and then we had that drought of 202 uh, I was absolutely shocked in 203 about the grasshoppers right 202 and 203 were very dry and grasshoppers just, came through and cleaned everything out. I mean, I'm originally from Saskatchewan. We had some grasshoppers, but when I moved up to Edmonton, there was no grasshoppers up here. And all of a sudden in, in 203, grasshoppers were thick, like a uh, hundred of them on the, the, the sunny side of a fence post, right. It was just absolutely thick with grasshoppers. And I was, you know, it was some pretty new land and, you know, not, not taken care of very well yet. And, and uh, yeah, grasshoppers were just everywhere. And then I'd walk out into the field and I had these circles of old, old bale grazing spots that were two feet tall. And I'm like, why are the grasshoppers eating everything else? Everything else in my pastures were gone. There was no grass left. The grasshoppers cleaned it all off, but these circles were two feet tall standing with barley. We, we bale grazed with some um, uh, barley green feed And you can't tell me grasshoppers don't like barley because I've seen barley fields devastated by grasshoppers. And what I learned way back then was that grasshoppers don't like moisture. There's actually a predator that attacks the grasshopper. It's actually a fungal disease. And like Jay, I'm not very good with my Latin. So if I had my presentation with me today, I'd have the Latin name up behind me on the screen and I wouldn't even try and pronounce it. But there is a fungus that attacks grasshoppers it's their most fatal predator simple fungus and it it comes in when there's moisture so what you need to do and so basically these circles the grasshoppers would not go into the circles they would there was none in there because the grasshoppers instinctively knew not to go where there's moisture so i it dawned on me it absolutely woke me up i know how to fence out grasshoppers All I have to do is have more water holding capacity on my land than my neighbors and the grasshoppers will literally stop at the fence posts because it's drier on my neighbor's land than it is on mine. So my goal since 2002 is to build water holding capacity to keep my grasshoppers out kind of a funny story but or
1: you anyway. can use steven's solution there and use wasps to control grasshoppers so really <laughs> we need to get into the wasp selling business and i think this is this is a good profit center coming up here
0: <laughs> yeah amber amber just wrote a good story about her interaction with the wasps they're talking uh, biblical amounts of uh grasshoppers in the interlake
4: uh, i don't know what they can't do anything about it after spraying and everything I just wondered what, uh, what they're going to be in store for next year.
0: What we need to do is on a global scale, fix the water cycle, right? Biblical proportions. Think about back then, biblical when, when all of a sudden plagues of uh, uh, pests would come in, massive uh, degeneration of the water cycle. Honestly, we could solve a lot of our problems on the planet right now if we could fix our water cycle.
1: Steve likes the easy things to do here. Let's, oh. let's just globally fix. The globally
0: <laughs> fix it. Right. We, we need to leave litter on the ground, build soil armor, um, stop of, eva- you know, reduce the evaporation, um, hold on to the rain when it comes runoff. That would, that would solve this. You know, it's a simple solution that is extremely difficult to do because it's on a global scale.
4: I agree but, with you. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people that just send their cattle to the pasture and then they don't see them again until the fall. So yeah. yeah, we, we move every day and we've, we're holding on, but, uh, where the grasshoppers are really bad. I don't think they'll get going again next year. Yeah. It's
0: if we not get- something you can fix quick. No, it's not. It's not at all. And that's uh, that's what I've been I've been saying for quite a while here this summer. I've been trying to encourage people. I've got land that's three to seven years old in my management. Right, we've been managing it for that many years. Yeah, the drought hurt it. There's grasshoppers on it. Right, it it it, it's not fixed yet. It takes time. Land that I've had for 20 years. uh, There's no grasshoppers on it. Right, we've got lots of grass. I I haven't been affected by the drought on that land yet. Right? This is not a quick fix. If it took 50 to 100 years to wreck the land, you're not going to fix it in three. Right? So don't get discouraged. Right, we're, we're working on this, building water. I can't emphasize enough leaving residue, Right, building that soil armor. That is what solves droughts. And right now, this year, if you're in a drought, it's too late to plan for a drought. Right? What we need to do right now this year is plan for the next drought. Maybe it's two years away. Maybe it's three years away. Maybe it's seven years away. We need to plan for that this year. And the the best advice I ever took after that uh, drought of 2002, right? I was really new at that. I, I started grazing up here in 99. So 2002, I was not ready for the drought. My land was not in shape for that drought and it, it hit me hard. Um, but one of my greatest mentors of all time, uh, Dennis Wabeser, May he rest in peace. Um, He was from Lloydminster, and uh, I was that young college kid that came out and pestered him with a hundred thousand questions. And he was so patient with me. I I highly respect him. Um, That drought of 2002 hit hit them down there very hard. They had 14 months in a row with zero precipitation. What we do is not drought proof. It is drought resilient, right? You can't go 14 months without any rain and expect your you know your pastures to be you know, growing and green. And at the end of that 14 months, when I talked to him and I'm like, well, what do you do now? He said, well, we don't do anything now. What we need, what we have to do today is plan for the next drought, right? We, we didn't plan good enough. We got to, we got to plan for the next drought today. So that piece of advice has stuck with me for, you know, ever since then. And every year I plan for a drought. I'm constantly wanting to build uh, drought resilience, build that soil armor, leave residue on top. Uh, you know, create soil through the root systems to hold on. You know, build that sponge to hold on to water. Water is our most important nutrient, and that's all I manage every year, all 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 the time. That's in my mind. I'm managing for the next drought.
1: Okay. Dustin's up next. Are you ready to
5: go there, Dustin? <laughs> yeah, you bet. So my question is around grazing alfalfa stands and hay fields. It's something we haven't done before. I've And some people have already chimed in with some great comments around. Um, I'm hesitant doing it just because I've heard all the different concerns. And uh, we've got about 20 acres uh, adjoining one of our pastures, and it's probably 50 to 70% alfalfa. So as a first try, I really don't want to go in here gung-ho and have some of the concerns that could pop up. So just some tips and tricks around that.
0: Okay, I haven't seen the the comments here. I've been too busy talking, so uh, hopefully I don't contradict them too much. Um, To me, um, legumes, any legumes, so alfalfa, any bloat-sensitive legumes, uh, clovers, things like that, it's a matter of not letting them uh, overload it's a change in diet too quickly that causes bloat. Okay. Uh, Jim Garrish made a quote years ago that we, uh, uh, we have more economic losses today in agriculture from the fear of bloat than we would ever get from bloat, right? So we're we're too, we're too afraid to put legumes in our pastures. So we'll, we'll uh, spend a whole bunch of money on fertilizer and not have legumes out there where the legumes get us the, the the nitrogen for free. So when I'm dealing with a, a high legume pasture, uh, I move once a day in the afternoon, okay, so I make sure that we're we're keeping the diet the same on a daily basis. so picture this, you know maybe when we're first getting into it i'll 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 transition their diet slowly so if we're on a grass pasture and we're gonna kick into a high legume pasture, well, I might give them a little bit of that pasture of that legume just to give them a touch in the afternoon of one day and then let them go back to the grass pasture. And if I'm really worried about it, I might do it another day. Give them a little bit, right? Just cross fence a little bit off, give them a little bit more. And that gives their 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 room and a time to adjust to that. Um, and then once we're on to it, then what I do is I move once a day in the afternoon. Bloat sensitivity is, is more likely to happen in this in the morning than in the afternoon. So if you picture those animals, in the morning, they wake up and they eat yesterday's leftovers, right? So they go out and they eat the grasses left over, the stems that are left over, and they fill up their rumen. Uh, and then in the afternoon, I move them into a new piece with all the good, lush, high quality legume out there, and they top up what, what is already in their rumen. So it's like giving them the, their dessert. Um, but they, they can't gorge themselves on it because their guts are already full and then the same thing happens the next day right they wake up in the morning and they oh okay well we're on the same paddock we'll we'll clean up what the leftovers from yesterday we'll fill our guts up and then in the afternoon they get their dessert right so it's that change in diet too quickly that causes bloat so if we can uh, mediate that and give them the same diet every day every day every day then it's not an issue and in 22 years knock on wood um, i have not had a bloat issue yet. And I've, I've grazed some pretty high legume pastures. Um, we just start managing it that way. Um, I don't use any products. I don't use any bloat, uh, you know, wh- whatever the salesman's trying to sell you for bloat. Uh, I don't use any of that. It's just management, keeping that diet the same uh, every day.
2: I will say the same thing about 30 years ago. I changed to grazing. And, of course, I used my old hay fields. What else? And the same thing. Be sure they eat it all down. I think you also should say put enough cattle on that they are eating the bottom part of the plant every day. And at that time, I think I moved them probably three times a day or every six hours or something like that. So, But same thing, that they would have the same feed all the time. I absolutely agree, but I didn't yeah. lose any, and it was all yearlings.
0: Yeah, and and it depends on the, the timing, too. They they say that when it, it's raining a lot, if it's wet, then you're more likely to get bloat issues. In that case, if it's pouring rain out there and I get stuck on that high legume pasture, then I'll move probably four or five or six times a day. Make sure they eat the stem and the leaves together. Um, exactly what Ula said there, so good, good.
1: So next, I wanted to put Shorty on the spot, but he says no. Uh, he was talking about bricks. Grasshoppers won't touch a plant that is brixing above 12. There are complete proteins and complex carbohydrates in the plants that are brixing above that point, And the insects cannot digest the complete proteins and the complex carbohydrates. Low bricks will encourage ligus biting. So I'm really sad that you're not going to talk to us about that, Shorty.
8: I'm a little afraid that I'm going to go in and out even with my video being off. So I'll just put it in the chat because I know that works.
1: Okay. Sounds good. That's fair. So Steve, do you want to talk a little bit about the impact of grazing on alfalfa stands? And we have a pretty high, high um, percentage alfalfa stand that we graze every year. So do you want to talk a little bit about how uh, grazing management has impacted the alfalfa?
0: Sure. I can do that. Depends on the intensity. Okay. So continuous grazing is very low intensity grazing. And I would say mob grazing is very high intensity grazing. And there's a whole, spectrum in between that. We had one field that was very convenient. It was a small rectangular field. So it was really easy to to mob graze. So mob grazing would be moving um, probably six or seven or eight times a day, right? So very high intensity. Um, And it was high in alfalfa. I remember my poor dog couldn't run through it. They had to stop and wait for me to drive through it so that they could you know, run behind in my tire track because it was too thick. We mob grazed on that just because it was convenient for a few years. I thought, ah, whatever, we'll, we'll mob graze this one. One, it was for training. And two, I was going to kind of show this mob grazing and be able to put pictures of it. Uh, we knocked the alfalfa out of that. It's probably 25% alfalfa now. We knocked it out faster than it normally would have because naturally most pastures are not or you know, fields will not stay at eighty percent alfalfa. Uh, it's not natural. Um, in a in a system like that, you've got a a, a a legume that's producing nitrogen. As it produces nitrogen, and you start recycling that through the animals and putting it back into the soil, that added nitrogen will favor the grass species. So then the grass species get stronger because there's available nitrogen, and they start out competing the legume. So naturally. Legumes will not stay that high, right? That's why in, you know, in five or 10 years, your, your alfalfa fields, if that's what you seeded, they fade out and you have to, you know, most people want to reseed them. To me, that's natural. If you end up getting, you know, your grasses get stronger and outcompete your legume, then all of a sudden we're not producing as much nitrogen. Now we're not produ- producing as much nitrogen, then your grasses are going to get weaker and then maybe your legumes are going to get a little bit stronger so there's a little balance in there and i i believe my own personally that's somewhere between um, 25 and 35% maybe that your legumes you, your legumes will stay in there and once your system turns into a polyculture and you start get, start getting the biology working you might not need legumes at all because there's bacteria in the soil that work with the the soil aggregates or inside those soil aggregates that also produce nitrogen and they do not need legumes to produce nitrogen so um you know, eventually, if your uh, system is running out of legumes, but your grasses are still growing fantastic, then don't worry about it because we've already got nitrogen fixers out there. They're just not associated with the legumes. Some Does anyone
1: have any questions about that? Like, I know that that's often something we get asked a lot about: is raising high legume pastures. We get talked. You know, that that's a common question.
2: I have to ask, that, I'm not myself, but. <clears throat> he has his uh, second cut alfalfa is blooming. And I'm telling him, graze it. You get more animal units out of that than baling it and then feed it. Tell me how you do that.
0: I'm, I'm probably not the one to ask on that, Ula, because I don't bale anything. Um, if I was to bale anything, it might. Occasionally I've baled the first cut because I don't have enough animals out there. Uh, a lot of people will will hay something for the hay. That's not my my thought process. If I have to hay something, it's to improve the grazing on the second time. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not a big uh, uh, hay guy. So I might not be the guy to answer that. But um, yeah, by all means, if if we can graze that uh, down, I think we get way more uh, you know nutrient dense feed for the animal than if we if we baled it. So if anybody else has any comments on that, I'd love to hear it. Steve, with
4: uh, our second cut of alfalfa, we're going to graze it, but should we not wait until after a killing frost? Because uh, I know we got until about August 20th, but we have had so little rain here. I'm thinking we'll do more harm putting cows out there right now.
0: Yeah, planning on your root systems, right? We got to think about those energy stores in the roots. If you were to cut it right now, and it had time to regrow just enough so that it put up some leaves but didn't replenish its root system, then I would be concerned about that, right? So either get it grazed right away so that we have enough time to uh, let it regrow and replenish the root systems or wait until after the, you know, or closer to the killing frost where it doesn't have time to empty those root reserves before, before that frost. So think of that killing frost as another grazing. Right? How much rest period do you have between when you graze and when the killing frost hits it? Yeah, so depends on the year. And, and this year is kind of, you know, it, it screwed up all the plans because of the drought system. So um, we've got to readjust and replan.
1: Okay, so we had another question come in. How do you leave cover when cows eat selectively? They eat clover first, then grass.
0: Uh, higher stock density. Right, you got to make sure they're eating everything when they're put in there. So, in our system, a lot of people will, you know, high stock density means uh, moving four or five times a day. Um, we're not that intense. If I move in the springtime every one to two days, right? They pretty well eat every plant out there. They knock it all down if they don't step on it. Later in the summer, we'll be moving every two to three to four days usually. Uh, this year, because of the drought, we're still moving every one to two days. So we're not going to have as much as we normally do, but. You've you've just got to keep stepping up that stock density until they knock everything down. Um, We still want to leave residue, but we want to have every plant affected, like knocked down, chewed on, stepped on
1: so, in order to do that, I'll just point out, um, there's a lot of different thoughts on how many paddocks you should have when grazing, and we were just having this conversation um with somebody, they're running eight paddocks. Any paddocks in theory, you're you're moving, right? That's that's better than having one continuous grazed paddock. However, like with with us right now, sixteen is a minimum for us in our environment where we are, that's, that's the minimum of what we're going to do in any of ourselves. So the the reason for that is that we want to allow that extra rest period. If we only have eight and we move as often as we're moving right now, well then we're going to be back on that first paddock right away. um If we leave it longer, well then they're overgrazing and when the grasses get a chance to grow up, they're back on it. They're grazing it right away, so it hasn't had a l- that rest period. Um, in harsher environments, you might want to have more paddocks so that you have a longer rest period, and so that's that's a really big key to that i think
0: yep i can't argue that
1: so laura you're up next
0: oh i found it what is the most effective way to seed alfalfa into an established grass paddock trying to find a way to give next year's pasture a boost after a dry year alfalfa is tough to broadcast and this year it has taught me uh reinforced to me that i have to include alfalfa in my broadcast mix. Alfalfa is doing great this year in a drought. Alfalfa always does well, but I, I, you know, quite a few years ago, I kind of dropped it out of my mix and um, I just stick with my clovers, but because of the drought this year, all my clovers are died out. They won't germinate. They won't kick into gear. Alfalfas are doing great. So, but what I found years ago is if I broadcast alfalfa out, it doesn't catch right. 10 years later, you can count the number of plants that are out there. So, but, you got to get the seed out there for it to germinate. So, you know, maybe 10 years ago, if I would have been seeding alfalfa, then this year we'd be, you know, doing a lot better in some of these paddocks. So uh, if you can zero till alfalfa in, it might kick in. I guess I got to go back to my cover crop from a few years ago. Uh, how do you establish something into a an, an established pasture? Um, in 2015, we decided, somebody told me you cannot establish a cover crop uh, mixture in, a, in, a, in an established pasture. So as soon as someone tells me that, i got to try and do it. So that's what I did. In 2015, we zero-tilled in a cover crop into a pasture. But what I wanted to do is set back the existing pasture. So cattle came in, first herd came in. I have two herds on one uh, area. So we've got 1,100 acres, but I run two herds on it. So I have the option of bringing in two herds. So the first herd came in, we hit that one paddock grazed her right to the ground, right? Just what you're not supposed to do. Got them out of there. They went on their rotation to the east side. Uh, Two weeks later, I brought in the other herd, um, grazed the same pasture again, hammered it to the ground, left them out there. Exactly what you're not supposed to do, right? So I'm trying to hurt this pasture on purpose. They were still out there. I seeded down. We had a zero till uh, fella come in and seed this down and uh, left the cattle out there for four more days. to make sure that we really set back the existing stand, um, and then just as the seedlings started to come up, I saw some seedlings in the in those uh, drill uh, or the disc uh, drill rows starting to come up. Uh, then we pulled the cows off because I didn't want to hurt those new seedlings coming up. Uh, fantastic catch. The, all these little seedlings were coming out there. I got pictures and videos and I'm crawling around on the ground out there all, all spring. Um, I had people commenting about, they, they knew it was my pasture because some guy was out there on his hands and knees in the pasture. And they came up great. We had a tremendous catch. I was really excited about it. And then we got no more rain for the, you know, about a month and a half or two months so all those little seedlings yellowed off and died um so i i consider it a success because they caught they did well if we would have got some rain they would have they would have taken off great you know again you tell me the year we get the perfect moisture and i'll tell you the year that everything's going to work right
1: they didn't all die i got to eat some peas of the field and there were some sunflowers that came up and looked really pretty in this pasture on the
0: highway in the low spot. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so if you want to establish alfalfa into a pasture, then what I would do is try and set back the existing pasture. But beware. If you don't get the rain that year, beware. You set your whole pasture back. Because that pasture that I was trying to fix, because I purposely overgrazed it and purposely hammered it and purposely hit it again. And then we had a drought, I set that whole pasture back about three years. Right. And so then I spent the next three years trying to baby that thing back and get it back into some decent production because I was so hard on it in a drought year. So on a good year, that would have worked great on a drought year. That really hurt, hurt that paddock. So,
1: so it is seven 30. We have one more question. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll get that one. Verlin, do you want to ask your question again?
3: Yeah,
6: sure. Um, Perfect. so just after the discussion about, Uh, a seeding into established and honestly that's really relevant to us because that's what we're trying to do is fix some of our pastures that are old and dying out um what about fall seeding like is there uh, i guess we're looking at doing we did some uh bale grazing this spring and definitely saw the benefit of how that you know helped keep moisture in but yeah i'm brand new at this game so trying to understand how to when to put the seed in and how to manage that with the bale grazing and that kind of thing
0: yeah bale grazing is the only quick fix I have right If somebody wants a quick fix for their land uh, bale graze right like it it, it it has always worked for me it is a, a instant, done that that land is fixed you might get some weeds for a couple years but you have three or four times the production so it doesn't matter right and then your grazing management should be able to knock out those weeds so yeah uh, bale grazing is my only quick fix so uh, but if you're trying to establish something um, without bale grazing it takes some more time it takes the right weather conditions one of my if I can't bale graze, on because the problem with bale grazing is you cover so little land, right? I could have 300 head out there. I only cover 35 acres, right? And I've got 3,500 acres. So how am I going to fix all that land? Well, it's going to take a long time. Um, if I've got a big area that I can't bale graze on and I need to fix it, uh, honestly, my most successful and, you know, it's a little bit slower, takes some time. But it, my most successful way, broadcast some seed out there or and let it, uh, what I call is deferred grazing. So you let it get mature. Maybe you, uh, if I got a new piece of land, um, I'll broadcast some seed out there in the spring and then I'll run the cattle over it real quick in the spring to try and get some uh, trampling effects you let their hooves knock that in the ground. And if you got a, you know, a half an inch of rain right at that time, that's ideal, but that doesn't always happen. And then I just let it go. I let it mature. I let it do what it does. Let the grow, whatever grows, grows. Uh, let it go to seed. Let it, Get that material to cover the ground, right? And then maybe in the winter time or in the springtime, I'll come in and, and high-intensity graze on it, right? Knock some of that to the ground. But the number one nutrient that I'm trying to get in there is water. Okay, and and I don't keep the water unless I have the the trash layer on the top, that soil armor, that residue. So I got to let it grow up, let it mature, put some seeds down, and knock it to the ground.
1: Just a note on the fall seeding with bale grazing, legumes have a really hard time coming up in a bale grazing field. So that's something to keep in mind.
0: In a bale grazing field, you put lots of residue, you put lots of nutrients, lots of urine, lots of manure. Legumes have the advantage when there's a lack of nitrogen, right? Because they work with the bacteria to produce nitrogen. Um, If you bale graze on an alfalfa field, you'll knock the alfalfa out because you're Giving all of the other species the advantage because you're throwing a bunch of urine and manure out there. They have the the uh, nutrients available. So, yeah, um, legumes are not needed in a bale grazing field. Now that being said, I've bale grazed with uh, clover bales before, and I've had this beautiful catch of clover after too. So, um, because all the seeds are there and it kicks into gear. But just be aware. I mean, it, you might be wasting your seed if you're throwing a bunch of legumes out there and on a bale grazing field.
1: So Steve, you want to do the closing speech?
0: Closing speech. Okay, we are by all means not done. We're going to go into the after networking networking now. And anybody who's shy can definitely open up their video. But I'd like to thank everybody for coming out. I want to thank Gateway Research Organization for giving us the platform and allowing this to happen. We will start this up again in November, just like we did last winter. uh, It was way more successful than I thought last year. I I didn't expect near as many people as we got last year. We were between 100 and 250 people every night. So By all means, come back. I don't know what our numbers totals were tonight, but I'm sure they weren't quite up to that. But uh, middle of summer, everybody's out working. I understand that's why we closed them down for the summer. A little bit of a closing, I guess, uh, Greener Pastures is a sponsor of this. Gateway Research Organization is a sponsor. Um, I just like to say that uh, we do have some schools and some and some consulting that we do um we are planning a year-round grazing system school in westlock for november 2nd 3rd and 4th if anybody's interested and if uh, that's too far away from you we are portable uh we can come anywhere um you got enough bums in seats and a you know a room for us to do a school on we can come anywhere to do a school i believe we're going to do a school in uh, north dakota this winter they're uh excited about having us coming down um so i am uh, looking forward to that one too so if if anybody's interested um uh, we've got some schools coming up we've got uh, one-day schools two-day schools and three-day schools if you're interested this get a little bit more intense and we also do some uh, online consulting if anybody's uh just wanting a little bit extra help we can do a a webinar Uh, pretty simple we uh sign up for a zoom call and we do a one-on-one webinar and uh, we can help you with whatever issues you have so other than that uh, i'd like to thank everybody for coming again thanks thanks grow for hosting us and uh we will kick into the after networking networking where we get uh, to have all sorts of fun we'll go all sorts of directions thanks everybody